This podcast contains bad words and spoilers. Please listen responsibly or you will get force choked until you call me daddy. Countrymen, douchey Harvard students who look way too old to be Harvard students with long blonde hair and sweaters and just talking shit at a bar. Beer me your ears. I'm Dave Michaels. I'm Brian Betts. And welcome to Beer Me a Movie. It is the movie podcast where me and Brian go back and forth surprising each other week after week with whatever we want to watch. And half the fun of it is just the surprise. Hey, Dave, do you like apples? It's way too early for this. Are we we doing this now? (laughs) We don't have to do it now. We can do it later. Can I ask you a quick question? Sure. Do you like apples? Are we doing this now? (laughs) How do you like them apples? A race to get to the the line. Even though it's not the line. line. There are so many lines. There are so many. I forgot how many lines are in this. Well, Brian, you're allowed to be forgetful. It's not your fault. Don't do that, man. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know. Brian, look at, look at me. Look at me. Stop. Don't do that, man. Don't do it. <laughs> we'll get there. This week, we are talking about Brian's pick, which was Goodwill Hunting from 1997, directed by Gus fucking Van fucking Sant, written by, I can't believe it, the Oscar-winning duo of Ben fucking Affleck and Matt fucking Damon. Who knew? I mean, like, at this point, everybody should, but- in 1997? Who fucking knew? Who knew? Who knew? Nobody knew in 1997. No, and especially if you watch this, you're just like, Ben Affleck, what are you doing with your mouth and making those Boston sounds? But then he's like, I write wicked good. Look, I wrote some wicked good dialogue, kid, okay? He really did, though. He <laughs> did. My mind. We'll get there when we get the screenplay. Do you just want to dive right into this thing? This is like uh, one that I could not believe how well it held up. Uh, same. I... I- Forgot most of what happens in this movie until I watched it again. And I was like, yeah, that was, that was a good pick. Good go me. Go you. The biggest high five in your direction. How about we get to our still yet to be named scale of movies? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Well, I don't know what well, it is. Rank and score and number five this thing right now. <laughs> number five all day. Here we go. The first category is story motivation. We're going to read the plot right off of Wikipedia. 20-year-old Will Hunting, played by Matt fucking Damon. Sorry. Matt fucking Damon. There you go. Of South Boston is a natural genius who is self-taught and been recently paroled from jail. I like how they say he's self-taught. Even though, like, when you watch him read books, it takes him, like, two seconds per page. He's very quick with the reading. He's very quick with the reading, which is good, because he seems to read a lot and he seems to regurgitate a lot. Is it self-taught if you're learning from books? I would say so. You're not being lectured to or anything like that. You're not absorbing anyone else's thoughts. That's uh, Like, in person, I suppose. Reading is still absorbing someone else's thoughts, but I would still say it's self-taught. He's taking the initiative to learn it. Self-guided, at the very least. Sure. He works as a janitor at MIT and spends his free time drinking with his stepbrother, Chucky. I I think I need a fact check on that one, Wikipedia. Stepbrother? Is it? I don't know. I, I figured that... There must have been some relationship somewhere in here with like a cousin, maybe? I have no idea because Will Hunting is an orphan. That's right. I don't right. know much about his family. But Chucky, of course, is played by Ben fucking Affleck. And Will Hunting also spends his time with his friends Billy and Morgan, played by Cole Hauser and Casey fucking Affleck, who I always forget is in this. Correct. But I want to ask you a very, very quick question. Yeah. Who the fuck is Cole Hauser? Who is Cole Hauser, and how is he the only person in this movie that didn't go on to do something else? I don't know, man. You would think that if like you had this on your acting resume, this would be like your Tiny Tim crutch that right. you are just using because that's the only way you're ever going to live, especially with whatever acting chops Cole Hauser <laughs> has. Uh, apology if you're a listener of the show, Cole Hauser, but who the fuck are you? Hey, I was Billy in Goodwill Hunting. Who? Who was Billy in Goodwill Hunting? I was the forefront, <laughs> the one that didn't talk. Oh, that one. Uh, gotcha. Oh boy! All right, we had to have a ginger in the crew. They did it he because gingered Boston hard. Yes. When Professor Gerald Lambeau, played by Stellan Fucking Scarsgard, 
posts a difficult combinatorial mathematics problem on a blackboard as a challenge for his graduate students, Will solves the problem anonymously. I got through combinatorial mathematics just fine, but anonymously was the tricky one. Look at like I saw your mouth and I saw how proud you were about saying combinatorial mathematics. <laughs> I was proud. I was. But I think you got too cocky. Like hubris killed you. It did anonymously. Anonymously, I can't <laughs> yep. anonymously. You pop anonymous. You give him all the easy ones. <laughs> Will solves the problem anonymously, stunning both the students and Lambo. This is like the most nerdy scene in the world where so many students like show up to this classroom and Lambo's like, all right, all right, who did it? And all these I people are just looking around. They just want to look into the face of genius. And nobody claims it. How cool would it have been if like Stellan Skarsgård's scarf just like lifted off his shoulders like, I did it. It was me <laughs> the whole time. Like Doctor Strange's cape. <laughs> yep. That thing has got to be like a character in this movie, though. Oh, for sure. It's like the most prevalent scarf in the world at this point in like cinema. When you see this thing, he wears like <laughs> just a jacket and just a regular old shirt. And then he just has this stupid scarf on the whole time. And he never like wraps it around his neck. It's always just fully just unraveled, there. dangling. This is a guy who definitely wears driving gloves, right? A hundred percent. He's he's pretty pretentious, even though we find out later that he's kind of shit at his job. Yep. <laughs> That's why he has to like find talent and mold talent or whatever it is to advance his own career. Whatever it is he does, but 100% on the driving gloves. Definitely a cap of some sort. Oh, for sure. And he's like in a Buick LeSabre, probably. <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's uh, an okay car, yeah, for the time. Honestly, his sentient scarf probably does the driving for him with the driving gloves. Probably. And that's he when Tesla back. was invented, probably. Good job, Professor Lambo. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> you douched so hard that 25 years later, we're talking about your stupid scarf. <laughs> Even Elon Musk wouldn't wear that scarf. He totally would. He over his would. boxy body. Yeah. And he'd be like, oh, it's actually a self-driving scarf. Did you ever see those pictures of Elon Musk like on the beach without the shirt on? Yes. He looks like a goddamn Minecraft character. He looks like a Tesla Cybertruck. <laughs> he does. Everyone's like, oh, man, it's the coolest car in the world. It's like, it is not. No. It very much no, is it not. It looks like it came right out of an N64 game. Yep, not fully rendered at all. <laughs> it matches his body perfectly. It does. It really does. And it probably has as many kids as he does, illegitimately. The no, that was just that car fucks. And it certainly does not. That car does not fuck. That car does not fuck. Apologies to all those who fuck. My bad. Now that we've established that the Tesla Cybertruck does not fuck. <laughs> it took us this long to get to it. It only took a scarf. That thought process tracks. I see where we, how we got there. I agree. As a challenge to the unknown genius, Lambo posts an even more difficult problem. He later catches Will writing the solution on the blackboard late at night, but initially thinks Will is vandalizing it and chases him off. Because, you know, janitors always vandalizing my blackboards. <laughs> That's exactly what janitors do. Also, blackboard in the hallway. What the hell's up with that? Uh, I guess it's because MIT students just like, they need to sometimes just drop everything and Solve some math. <laughs> okay. They have such a, a yearning for knowledge that sometimes just genius strikes them in the hallway and they have to get it out on chalk and board. What was this math problem? It just looked like a bunch of lines that like went certain directions. Like, I am not good at math. I will not hide that. But I don't know whatever that was. I never got to the stick figure level <laughs> of math. <laughs> like you work your way all the way back around. And just becomes like, this is calculus 9,000. Also, it's kind of like basic addition subtraction again, but with lines. But now we do it with dots and lines. We have gone beyond numbers. <laughs> We've gone all the way back to connect the dots. <laughs> Everything old is new again. That's right. What do you think came first, connect the dots or math? <laughs> That's a wonderful question. You want to know what's sad is I can name like one prevalent mathematician from like sixth grade. They made us do a project on mathematicians. Oh. And I took the guy with the longest names. I thought it'd be funny. And it turned out he was ridiculously important. He's like the father of algebra. Oh, wow. And his name's Abu Jafar Muhammad Ibn Musa Al-Khwarizmi. And I still remember that. That's amazing. I still I just remember that. Just call him Daddy Alge. <laughs> I could have called him that, I guess. <laughs> that sounds like something under the sea. That Daddy is Alge. super impressive that you remember that, actually. I don't remember much, and I remember that for some reason. That is a long name to just keep locked up there. 
Do you know how many phone numbers you've forgotten in your life, but you remember that name? I don't know, like, my wife's phone number sometimes. Yeah. Like, I have to think about it. And that's a problem. But if you ever need that one piece of pointless trivia. <laughs> Let me call my boy Abu. He'll hook me up. He won't. He's been dead for, like, 700 years. Chill out. <laughs> I was going to say, algebra, not that old. At a bar, Will meets Skylar, played by Minnie fucking Driver. A British woman about to graduate from Harvard College, in case you were thinking it might be another Harvard. <laughs> and she plans on attending medical school at Stanford. Just smarty pants. She's extremely smart, but Will goes in there and he impresses her with all this talk about books and stuff. Well, he bashes the one blonde dude. He does, who was bashing Ben Affleck, so he had it coming. That's a good point, but he like throws it back in his face about how this guy is reciting info from a book to will and will's throwing it back like yeah i read that too it's on page 98 of this but then will starts listing off just a bunch of info as well and he's like and the sad thing about you is that you're not going to have an original thought in your life which is interesting for a person to say after they just quoted a book back well it wasn't so much that he was quoting the book he was just citing where the other guy was quoting his shit from so basically he just called him out saying you can't have an original thought fuck off i'm gonna go bang this apple now yeah, not so much bang apples, but like sit in the corner and not talk to apples until the end of the night. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and then the apples will come to him and give them their number. That's a good apple, I suppose. It's not a bad apple. Minnie fucking Driver is killing it this entire movie. She is so charming, and I completely understand how Matt Damon falls for her. I completely get it. The next day, Will and his friends fight a gang that contains a member who used to bully Will as a child because we need to move the plot along. We do. We need to show that there's camaraderie and loyalty and they will throw down in slow motion fights with slow motion punches. Will is arrested after he attacks a responding police officer. Yeah, you shouldn't have done that. You can't do that. That's generally frowned upon. It is. Lambo sits in on his court appearance and watches Will defend himself, which is generally a bad idea but Will pulls it off. Lambo arranges for him to avoid jail time if he agrees to study mathematics under Lambo's supervision and participate in psychotherapy sessions. Is that all it takes for striking a police officer? Is just a guy in a scarf to say, no, 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 I will teach the boy math. <laughs> Do not arrest him. He is gifted. I have seen in my hallways. <laughs> Uh, excuse me, sir. Why do you have a chalkboard in your hallways? <laughs> because my students get off on math. Maybe you should put uh, a chalkboard in your judicial hallways and see who gets off on law. Huh, judge? Huh? You, you ever think of that? The math is not good enough. I'll get him psychotherapy. He's clearly fucked up. This is fine. We'll do that too. But mostly the math thing. I need to use this kid to further my career. <laughs> but also, I guess I'll try to take care of him too a little bit. Ah, oh, goodness. Uh, the stakes. There stakes. they are. You're going to go to prison if you don't talk to a therapist. Will tentatively agrees, but treats his therapists with mockery. It's pretty funny, too. It is. He's, like, obsessed with, like, picking on these therapists, like, sexual orientation and everything, and, like, their past, and they all just boot him out. It's They're wonderful like, ah, to watch. I'm not dealing with this clown. That's I'm out here. Right. He's clearly not in a place to be therapized. Yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> that's the official terminology, <laughs> as far as I know. In desperation, Lambo calls on Dr. Sean McGuire, played by Robin fucking Williams. Oscar winner for this role, Robin fucking Williams. I just feel like that's not enough gravity. It's, it's Robin fucking Williams. It can't be stated it bears enough how good he is in this movie. Because usually you see the off-the-wall Robin Williams, and right. that is not what you're going to get. He's so contained here and just absolutely crushing it. Flexing, I think is the word. Flexing. Oh, yeah. Just showing off for everyone. Hello! Oh, hello! I will therapize you! That's the direct quote from the movie. I couldn't believe that Ben Affleck wrote that line, but he did. Dr. Sean McGuire is Lambeau's college roommate who now teaches psychology at Bunker Hill Community College. Unlike other therapists, Sean actually challenges Will's defense mechanisms. Well, it comes from the same neighborhood as him. They're so we kind of understand Southie. how the kid ticks. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's important. It is important. And a therapizer. You that's need somebody right. who's from your street. 
Otherwise, how are they going to know what you've been through? It is important, especially in this situation for this plot. It's super important. Right. It's the most important <laughs> thing, kid. This boy's wicked smart. We need to therapize him so hard. I know this kid. I know where he's from. I know the, the Dunkin' Donuts he frequents. <laughs> he's got dunks in his hand most of the movie. <laughs> Almost every scene. And they're just like turning the cup directly at the camera. Dunks. He's wicked good. At some point in the movie, when he's hanging out with Minnie Driver, he starts drinking Pete's coffee. How did he not like light on fire on the spot? I don't know. He's not. We're going to arrest him again. <laughs> hey, this is Boston. You're not allowed to drink Pete's coffee. Get out of here. Like, I'm not in favor of swatting anyone, but I feel like if you're in Boston, you drink Pete's coffee. Maybe I'll look the other way. I mean, at least it wasn't a Starbucks. That's a good point. Like, I don't ever think I've even had a Starbucks in or around Boston. I don't think I have. And I couldn't tell you where one is in Boston. Not a clue. I'm sure they exist, but I'm sure they don't do a lot of business either. It's like a back alley Starbucks. Just a barista pops out of a dumpster, quickly (laughs) pours his dumpster coffee in there, because that's what Starbucks is. It's dumpster coffee. Dumpster coffee. There's just a guy standing on a corner in a trench coat, and he opens it up. He's got a green apron on underneath. Hey, (laughs) hey, I got that Starbucks back here. He lights a match on the wall and drops it in the coffee. He's like, this is how we get the burnt flavor. <laughs> it's super important for the bucks. It does taste burnt. It always does. And they're like, nah, that's delicious. That's from the it's hills of Columbia. It's like, no, that tastes like dumpster coffee. coffee. No, you roasted it too long. You did. You absolutely did. In that case, go visit my boy Pete. He'll give you some coffee. Yeah. Maybe you'll get some therapizing in the, in the process. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> That would be such a weird flex for Pete's Coffee if like they negotiated a deal where you have Matt Damon like drinking dunks the entire first half of the movie and then as he's starting to come out of his fog and get fixed in a way, he starts drinking like Pete's Coffee. <laughs> and like subliminally they're just like, God damn it, what a weird shot to take for character Pete's development. Coffee. It's good for your brain. <laughs> for your emotional wellness. Ah, oh, that's great. It's like, ah, oh, a kid from the South who's got a lot of defense mechanisms because he grew up hot, he drinks dunks. You got a genius boy who's over his defense mechanism. He looked in the mirror and said, it's not my fault. He drinks Pete's. And then you have someone like Rain Man who's counting matchsticks on the ground. He's drinking the bucks. I think you crushed it. I think you solved coffee. I did it. Fully did it. Coffee meets therapizing. <laughs> that's it. That's the title of this episode. <laughs> I do want coffee, like, right now, though. Like, I stacked. All of a sudden have a hankering for, for a good cup of joe. I've been doing French press again lately. Okay, yeah. And I think that's, like, the way to go. Because it's, like, a personal craft of just, like, coffee for you. Right. Like, I make it. It's a six-cupper, and I bring it right upstairs to my office, and I get to work. My wife's like, you going to drink all that? I was like, you bet your sweet ass I am. Oh, I'm going to come down at noon and refill it. I might. <laughs> I'm be all jittery, but at least it ain't the bucks. It means daddy's getting smart. That's right. <laughs> this is therapy and a French press. Pete's. I'm a fancy boy. Drinking out of my R2-D2 mug. What, are you hanging out with Mini Driver? I wish. <laughs> Same. <laughs> During the first session, Will insults Sean's deceased wife, and Sean threatens him. He says threatens. He chokes him. He chokes him, and Matt Damon acts real hard. He sure does. He's like, this is me getting choked right now. Ah, <laughs> it's scary and it hurts a little. <laughs> I wrote this. I wrote this. <laughs> but after a few unproductive sessions, Will finally begins to open up. Will is particularly struck by Sean's story of how he met his wife, who later died of cancer by giving up his ticket to the historic Game 6 of the 1975 World Series after falling in love at first sight. I love this story, man. It's so good. It really is so good. And this is after the the famous bench scene. Right. That they have sitting next to the water. And Sean basically just lays it out like, hey, man, you got to make up your own decision here. I'm here to help you if you want. If you don't want it, fuck off. Go drink your bucks. I'm going to go drink my my dunks and eventually my peats. But... (laughs) <laughs> you do you kid you do you challenge whatever whatever Balls you in your court chief look i could do the thing if you want me to do the thing but i'm not going to do the thing if you don't want me to do the thing he tells the story of the world series like he was there he gets so worked up he's like jumping around the office and he's got matt damon jumping around the office so excited for it and then he gives that little twist he's like yeah but i didn't i didn't see the game 
No, he said, I slipped my ticket across the bar to my bunny. I said, I got to go see about a girl. Got to see about a girl. And that, he doesn't have to live with the regret of, I wonder what could have been with that beautiful girl at the bar. And I love that. I really that's, love that's that. That's so good. Yeah, I agree. You're in control of your own destiny, man. He knows it. Right. You can go watch the Sox game or you can go see about a girl. Fucking beautiful, man. This encourages Will to build a relationship with Skylar, though he lies to her about his past and is reluctant to introduce her to his friends or show her his rundown neighborhood. Probably the right move. He lives in a shithole. He does live in a shithole, but I don't, I don't know that lying's ever the right move. Like, he definitely didn't have to be like, oh, yeah, I got 12 brothers. Here's the no, names. That's a, that's a big number. That's like way too big of a number to drop. And she immediately is like, I don't believe you. Say their names again. And he does it because, you know, he's got that memory thing. All you got to say is, I got three brothers. They all live in uh, Wisconsin or something. Someplace we're never, ever going to go. <laughs> I like that you're workshopping his lie for him instead of just being like, <laughs> be honest. No, he can't. He lives in such a shithole. He can't be honest with this situation. She's, she's way too hot. She's way too cool. He definitely went the right route with lying. My he just advice took way to too big of a swing. Is to not be yourself. No matter what you do, <laughs> don't drink the Pete's coffee when you're with her, not the Dunks. Show that you're a fancy boy. He's going to drink like that Illy or whatever it is. Like to really try to show up. <laughs> whatever that is. I've never had it. That cat poop coffee? That's how you show off. No, that's the, the guano one. The bat poop. Yeah. Oh, there's bat poop? You said cat there's, poop? There's cat poop coffee. Yeah. Who would drink that? Don't answer that. I know a lot of people like cats way too much. Very rich people. They say it's excellent. Yeah, well, you, you kind of have to, I feel like, at that point. I feel like if you've been conned into drinking, <laughs> drinking cat, cat shit coffee. Say it's the greatest thing I've put in your mouth. You have to be like, no, this is really good, guys. I'm not, I'm not an idiot for trying this. Trust me. Have you ever seen those things that they sell online that's like the tongue, the fake tongue that you can use to lick your cat? I swear <laughs> to God, it's real. I hate that I have seen this, yes. Like, that's the type of person who drinks cat poop coffee. I don't know. I don't like know. Maureen Ponderosa or something like Maureen that. Maureen Ponderosa. She for sure has one of those cat tongues. Yeah, she definitely has one of those cat tongues, and it goes in the same mouth where her dead tooth is. Or was. I, I don't remember. I don't know if the tooth came out when she became a cat. <laughs> I know at happens? some point, Dennis was reattracted to her, so she probably got rid of the tooth. But it also could have been because of the fake boobs. It could have been. It could have been. That was the alimony she used to become a cat with fake boobs. <sighs> what a great show. It really is. Also, it is not always sunny in Philadelphia. No, Philadelphia is a complete fucking shithole. With me and Brian, we're at PAX <laughs> Unplugged uh, recently for the board game convention and walking around Philly. Uh, dump. <laughs> it's not a clean city, but it's never claimed to be. No, that's true. But it's one of those dumps that like they lean too hard into the, like, the ownership of. They're just like, eh, it's a shithole. What are you going to do? It's like, you could clean try. It. You could try to you clean could try. it a little bit. And it just blows my mind. So like, nah, we don't really like outside. Remember that hitchhiking robot? We fucked that thing up too. <laughs> oh, yeah, they did. Philly. <laughs> Classic Philly. We ate at Pat's and Gino's while we were there. And guess which one we prefer? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it was Gino's. All that tells me is that Pat's quality has gone down significantly. It has, or like Gino's, like they they took the racism off the sandwich. <laughs> They're like, let's stop seasoning these in hate. <laughs> let's just keep that in the back room, not on the food. It's a good uh, theory to go off of when it comes to cooking, I suppose. <laughs> Pleasing your your clientele instead of just hate fucking them with flavor or whatever. Hate fucking with flavor might be the name of Guy Fieri's uh, tell-all <laughs> memoir. Which one? That guy, is, when he's done, he's going to write like six of them. Like the mayor of Flavortown, hate fucking with flavor. Uh, <laughs> eyes in the back of my head. Uh, top down. Uh, I couldn't think of one fast enough for that one. <laughs> Frosted chips. No, frosted tips and seasoned chips. There you go. The Guy Fieri story. Yeah, I'm done talking about Guy Fieri again. Yeah, that was week, almost at the very least more Guy than it was Philly, and both Ooh. very questionable. Both of them. Will also challenges Sean to take an objective look at his own life, since Sean can't move on from his wife's death. We got a little codependency happening here. 
Lambo sets up a number of job interviews for Will, but Will scorns them by sending Chucky as his chief negotiator and by turning down a position at the NSA with a scathing critique of the agency's moral position. Yeah, he takes the moral high ground, I suppose. I, sending Chucky to do anything just lets Ben Affleck act more, and that's never a good thing <laughs> in this movie especially. I What I love about this scene is that it's it's clearly this Southie guy pretending to be a fancy boy, and God damn it, if that's just not Ben Affleck in a nutshell. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> just a, a great summation of his entire career, really. You know what? That really puts it perfectly. And yeah, he's got multiple Oscars. Fine. Fine. I'll give him that. But he really is just a Southie boy who got all fancied up. I found an interesting article from the 25th anniversary of this movie, which just happened to be, you know, the day before we recorded this episode. Yep, <laughs> last week. And it was interesting because it was just, it was crack.com and they said, could Will Hunting have prevented 9-11 by taking the NSA Holy job? hell. And I was like, can you do that? Is that allowed? That is like such a big what if swing. I feel like if you're struggling for content, you're like, oh yeah, the 25th anniversary of Goodwill Hunting. What can we pull from this movie? That that's what you go with. Yep. So it's one of those like, you know what? Let's show how smart Will Hunting would have been, the fictional Will Hunting, by trying to debate if he could have prevented the very real terrorist attacks of 9/11. Also, the article never reaches a conclusion. They're just like, yeah, probably. That's because cracked is pretty much just a bunch of chimps smashing their knuckles on the keyboard <laughs> at this point. <laughs> What's an article title that'll get us a lot of attention? That, that we really stop, don't have hard to... stop. You nailed it. Clickbait. That's it. They're going to be looking through this list of what's going to be good articles. They're going to be curious about what different headlines we're pitching. <laughs> Will hunting 9-11. Pulled them both out of the bingo thing. That's what we're writing an article about. So you're saying that pretty much Cracked writes their articles the way that Family Guy does? Like they According write their episodes? <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, brilliant. Skyler asks Will to move to California with her, but he refuses and tells her that he is an orphan and that his foster father physically abused him. And this is like right after they bone, too. Right, like immediately after. This is a hell of an escalation. Like, move to California. He's like, I'm an orphan. That's not how this should work. Like, you're supposed to come down after you finish. Not get all ramped up. My foster father used to put out cigarettes on my body. But then, I, like, you look at Minnie Drive, the way she's reacting to this, she's like, I didn't know. Like, I really, you didn't tell right. me any of this. You told me you have 12 brothers and that your dick was enormous, and I believe that. <laughs> and she's still like, I don't care. Move to California. He's like, I can't. I'm an orphan. That doesn't have anything not... to do with it. It makes it that you have no ties here. You understand exactly. that, right, Will Hunting? There's literally nothing keeping you here. I got a great job at a construction thing because I got fired from the they they build shit out west too, Will. And also you're a genius. Yeah, but what about Ben Affleck? What will Ben Affleck do without me? Yeah, I, that is the thing holding him back. So try playing the orphan card if somebody ever asks you to do something you don't want to do. Post-coital, though. That's the only time I'm it works a secret orphan. <laughs> I met your family. You met a family. <laughs> you met a few guys I hang out with that Wikipedia calls my stepbrother. I still can't believe that's there. I still can't believe that. Unless Ben Affleck's an orphan too, and like they shared a They're foster home orphans. together. I don't know how that works. They're foster siblings at that point, but yeah, I don't. I don't understand how any of this works familial wise. Will comes back from Philadelphia. Says I met a wizard in a subway. <laughs> he gave me a magic word. <laughs> That's really going to complicate the DC universe. <laughs> yes, it so obviously, Will breaks up with Skylar and later storms out on Lambo, dismissing the mathematical research he's been doing. Just Lights it on fire! It, burns it all down. And that's when Lambo's like, yeah, I suck. I need you. What, what the fuck, man? Sean points out that Will is so adept at anticipating future failure in his interpersonal relationships that he deliberately sabotages them in order to avoid emotional pain. Durr. Yeah. Great diagnosis, Doc. I could have figured that out while he was still drinking dunks. <laughs> we like we watched the same movie, Doc. We could have told you all of this. It didn't take much. Real easy therapizing. But also at the same time, like he did have to earn that trust to get in there. 
Like, I would be a bad therapist because I'd be like, yeah, you fucked up. Time, fix yourself. <laughs> I feel like some people need that, though. I agree, but I wouldn't be it's able to very... pick out which people need that. <laughs> right. It's a very niche market. Yeah, I need I need somebody to berate me so I can do good at stuff. I see you drinking dunks, you fucking moron. <laughs> oh, clearly you haven't figured your shit out because you're still drinking Dunkin' Donuts out of cardboard cups. Get a medium. They're styrofoam. You won't burn your hands. You won't burn your hands, you dickhead. God, oh, you're an orphan. I get it. Uh, you're not. You're not. You're not. Then I'm again. your father. What? What? That's a twist you didn't see coming. <laughs> yeah, I came on your mother's back and it somehow leaked in there. Oh, my God. My boys don't just swim. They also travel. They're running a triathlon all over your mother's body. <laughs> my boys do parkour. <laughs> I wonder, in 1997, <laughs> do you think all the Dunkin' Cups were cardboard? I, I probably were, because they're just like, yeah, we haven't figured out what we can use to kill sea animals yet. Yeah, I wasn't drinking coffee because I was 10. I wasn't drinking coffee. I didn't drink coffee until I was like in high school, and this girl I was dating was drinking. I was like, I love coffee. And also, yeah. I have 12 brothers. I got 12 brothers. I drink a ton of coffee. <laughs> but I won't move to California with you, because I'm a secret orphan. Chucky likewise challenges Will over his resistance to taking any of the positions he interviews for, telling Will he owes it to his friends to make the most of opportunities they will never have, even if it means leaving one day. And he tells Will that the best part of his day is a brief moment when he waits on his doorstep thinking Will has moved on to something greater. I love this because Will says, like, oh, you want me to do it for me. And he's like, fuck you, I want you to do it for me. Exactly. I'm going to be stuck here working like this for the rest of my life. You have a chance to get the fuck out of here. Do it. Do it. Fucking do it. Go drink all the Starbucks and Pete's all over the goddamn country. Don't drink Starbucks. Don't drink Starbucks. That's going backwards. Get some of that Seattle's Best or whatever it's called. <laughs> or whatever Fraser drinks, yes. <laughs> get you some tossed salad and scrambled eggs. <laughs> Throw that in a cup. I will be in a good place. Will walks in on a heated argument between Sean and Lambo over his potential. Which is a really interesting thing to do, because they keep him outside like the frosted glass door while they're yelling about him. Yeah. And you can tell they both do care about him. You can tell Sean cares about him. I Lambo... think Lambo does, too. Lambo is using him, but at the same time, he does have an he emotional investment in him. He just wants him to live up to him. his potential. Yeah, he's kind of just like, you have a gift. I, I don't have that gift. You don't understand right. how special you are. As an intellectual, I wish I could do half the things you can do. You have a gift that you should be sharing with the world because with great power must also come yeah, great responsibility, yes. et cetera, et cetera. But meanwhile, Sean is like, that isn't everybody's end game, though. Wow, this is a lot of Marvel. In so much. Sentence. You're just dropping it so I'm not, it's much. It's not intentional at this point. It's just muscle memory from four years <laughs> of another podcast. Very, very... Hello, citizens! Nope. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Nope. <laughs> But you can tell that Sean is like, that's not everybody's path. Like, I, I skipped the game. I met the girl, and that was what was right for me. And Sean and Lambo have their own shit to get over. But I love that, too. Yeah. I love that. I love that each person in this film is able to draw their own path. They're able to follow their own journey. And yeah. that is what this movie's all about, is that you're supposed to follow what you think is right. Find your own happiness. That there's not... A, a predetermined destiny of what you're supposed to do. Exactly. And I think that is one of the most brilliant things about this movie. The ending is super fucking predictable. Of course And that's it is. okay. But yeah. Because it's not about that. Like, I, I'm already lifting shit from Roger Ebert's <laughs> review. He gave this movie three out of four stars. He said the outcome of the movie is fairly predictable. So is the whole story, really. It's the individual moments, not the payoff, that make it so effective. It's the friends we made along the way. It, that's exactly what it is, though. <laughs> hundred percent. It's the coffee we drank along the way. It's all the dunks we drank along the way. Sean and Will share and find out that they were both victims of child abuse. Sean helps Will to see that he is a victim of his own inner demons and to accept that it is not his fault, oh, causing man. him to break down in tears in Sean's arms. It is a hard scene to watch. It really is. I I just got chills just now thinking I did about it. Yeah, it's... it's such a masterclass because you have Robin Williams, who is more or less directing this scene, I feel like, with yeah. the pacing, and Matt Damon just reacting, but not giving in, which exactly. I think is just, oh, man. 
Both of them are just top of their so game. So well here. done. So well done. And I can't wait to talk about Gus Van Sant when we talk director. He does so many interesting things in this movie. <laughs> Absolutely does. Will accepts one of the job offers arranged by Lambeau. Having helped Will overcome his problems, Sean reconciles with Lambeau, deciding to take a sabbatical. Will's friends present him with a Chevy Nova for his 21st birthday so he can commute to work. And then, in the next scene, they go to pick him up from his house, even though he has a car now. Even though he has a car <laughs> now. And they clearly don't notice that the car is not the there. The car is not there, right. Chucky goes to Will's house to pick him up, only to find that he's not there, much to his happiness. He gives, like, that stupid smirk that only Ben Affleck could do. He stands there for a while, like, thinking, like, huh, motherfucker did it. And then does the derpy Ben Affleck. It's not even that. It's like, this is, again, the 90s Ben Affleck, the derpy Ben Affleck. It's the same look he gives at the end of, like, Chasing Amy of, uh, lesbian's happy. That's good. Yeah, oh. I did that. I did that. I made that lesbian happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not It's not Robin Williams who's been therapizing him the whole movie. It was me. It was the thing I said. And then he takes a sip of Dunks, and then he just pours it in onto the ground and opens up his, his track suit and pulls out a Pete's. Growth. Character arc complete. He's drinking Pete's. I guess that would be character growth. I think it would be even more character growth if he like, drank the Pete's and went, no, no. And, and he, he starts spat licking, it out. licking the Dunks off the, the ground. He's like, this is who I am. This is who I am. <laughs> My arc, he was finding out that I'm just a piece of shit. <laughs> But I'm owning it now. <laughs> but nobody's more excited than Casey Affleck in this scene because he just got upgraded to shotgun. He didn't. It's mostly because Cole Hauser doesn't even bother trying. Because who the fuck is Cole Hauser? Exactly. He just sits there silent while Casey goes, yeah, I'm taking shotgun now. Fuck Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> Will sends Sean a letter telling him to tell Lambo that he had to go, quote, see about a girl revealing he passed on the job offer and instead is headed to California to reunite with Skyler. And Robin Williams delivering this last line of the movie. This improv last line. Son of a bitch. Stole my line. So good. Absolute perfection. That is Good Will Hunting from 1997, directed by Gus fucking Van Sant. I love this movie. I do too. I I love it a lot. Huge fan of this movie. And that is why I'm going to go with an eight. Eight for story and motivation. I'm penalizing it one point for being as predictable as it is. It is it is fairly predictable. You know what's gonna happen. And like as soon as he meets the girl, you're like, okay, I know where this is going now. Yeah, it's not very hidden at all, but it doesn't mean it's not very, very good. But being written by a very young Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, you kind of see why it's as predictable as it is, but it's still just it's so damn good. It really is. Eight is appropriate. Let's talk about casting. They cast themselves. Right. And they actually had an issue with that with uh, some of the production companies. They were like, no, we want Brad Pitt. We want Leonardo DiCaprio. And they're like, we're not giving you our movie if we can't be in it. And then Harvey Weinstein said, I'll show you my weird testicles if you fight with me. (laughs) I have more about that, but we'll talk about it when we get to the screenplay. Fair enough. But really, Uh, it was was Kevin Smith who kind of was like, saved this movie from Executive producer Kevin Smith. And wow. That's a quick rise to EP. Because he's only three years removed from Clerks at this point. That's insane. But yeah, the the casting in this, I mean, once you put Robin Williams in this movie, it's going to do numbers. It elevated it to the fucking stratosphere. I I mean, this is at the uh, height of his career. Skarsgård was a phenomenal choice. Absolutely. Mini Driver was a beyond so phenomenal choice. Weinstein didn't want Mini Driver, and um, one could probably assume that it's because she did not give in to his whims. Good for her. Good for her. I'm going to go with a seven. It's mostly because of Ben Affleck's choices. Seven. Because, yeah, the guy that wrote the, <laughs> wrote the movie and was contractually obligated to be in it uh, was still Ben Affleck. Yep. <laughs> Let's not forget. But a plucky Bostonian Ben Affleck. Appropriate. Sure. I think seven works. Let's talk about the protagonist, Will Hunting. He's a very good character. He's so good. That He's Will so Hunting. good. He is so good. He's a good Will Hunting. I really like it. I think that it's really effective the way Matt Damon pulls this off because the whole time you're kind of screaming at the screen a little of, God damn it, pull your head out of your ass, Will. Get out of your own way, you alleged genius. 
But that's the appropriate way to do this character. Is you're supposed to be angry at him while rooting for him. Right. And just, God damn it, who else could pull that off like 1997 Matt Damon? Nine. Nine. Antagonist. Matt Damon. Nine. It's Matt Damon, and it's also a nine. Screenplay. It's ridiculously good. It's so damn good. And they let Casey Affleck and Robin Williams improv, which, good for them. And Robin Williams is in a weird spot in his career because he had his huge rise to stardom coming off of like Mork and Mindy and then going to Good Morning Vietnam in the late 80s. Right. Dead Poet Society is also late 80s. Big. Awakenings. You go to Hook, Aladdin, Mrs. Yeah. Doubtfire. And then he kind of comes down a little bit for a good four or five years before he comes back with like Jumanji and the Birdcage. And then he fires out. And then full fucking the, force with the Robin Flubber, Williams Renaissance. Of course. Flubber came out only a few weeks before this movie. Yeah, he competed with himself and everyone went, that's goofy as shit. And then he went, no, no, trust me. I, I can act still. Just trust me. <laughs> they're very different roles. I don't care that they're in theaters at the same time. But this is his second coming in a way. Yeah. And it's, I think, his best role. I really think this is his, the best that you're going to get from Robin Williams. It's so far up there. And it's, God, he just absolutely crushes it. What are we talking about? Screenplay? Screenplay. I think the story itself is predictable, as we talked about, but the dialogue yeah. is super realistic. The dialogue is, is written so well. And there's a fun story about this screenplay. And the story goes that on page 60 of the script, Damon and Affleck wrote a completely out of nowhere, just surprise, blowjob scene between Will and Chucky. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they took it to every major studio, and nobody ever mentioned the scene until. Harvey Weinstein read the script. And he's like, I only have one note. What the hell is this scene? Can we get rid of it? And then Damon and Affleck explained that they only put the scene in the script specifically to find out who read it. That is such a touch of genius. And I guarantee Weinstein got off on it. He was probably like, that's a hot scene, but we got to get it out of this movie. I see what these sexy boys are doing. And uh, that maybe that's why Wikipedia thinks they're stepbrothers. Maybe that's exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's an Oscar-winning screenplay. It is, yes, it is a phenomenal screenplay. I will go with a 10. Yeah, I agree. It's a 10, despite the predictability. <laughs> right. <laughs> Style and tone. Gus fucking Van Sant really brings Boston to life. Even when it's Canada. Exactly. <laughs> that in itself is a talent. <laughs> Making Boston believable. Yep. Elsewhere. As, as a place. <sighs> There's nothing terribly special about anything that you see, but it no. just feels so grounded. Absolutely. It all feels real. And they did do a lot of shooting around Boston. And in fact, I have a friend who used to live in the same street as Will Hunting's house. And I've, I've been by it. And it looks much nicer now than it did in 1997. Oh, I bet. But making something look realistic is really, really hard to do. Like, it's not that you just show up on the day and you just start shooting. Like, it still needs right. the touches. And this is only a $10 million movie. Yeah. There's not a lot of money involved in this thing at all. We'll get there. I really like how grounded everything looks and how everything feels. It feels like you're living in this 1997 Boston with these characters. I yeah. really like it. Yeah. I want to go with uh, seven. And seven it's for feels a directorial decision that we're about to talk about. All right. Let's talk about it with director. Gus Van Sant uses extreme close-ups like no other in this movie. <laughs> You're going to get very intimate with the pores on every actor's face. You will. And as an actor, I'm not sure if I would love that or hate that, but in your performance, there's nowhere to hide. Exactly. Which is such a good choice, especially when you get like these super emotional scenes between Skyler and Will. How right. he is just right up in there. <laughs> like, it's not a regular close-up. It is an extreme close-up. These yeah. actors have nowhere to hide. And that brings out the emotion so much better than you would normally get with something like a Woody Allen movie where the camera's pulled back and you're letting the actors live within the set. Yes. And act that way. I, I think that Gus Van Sant, this is the best he's ever done. And that's saying I, I something because he's an unbelievable director. He's very good. I mean... He did 1998 Psycho. He did Finding Forrester, Milk, and I agree that this is his standout. I want to go with an eight. Eight it is. I can't see any fault in that. 
And it's also especially because he got Ben Affleck not to be Ben Affleck for a little bit, but then he for totally a little bit. Ben Affleck hard. But then you can't you can't you can't keep Ben Affleck from Ben Affleck. Anymore. He's gonna find his way out. He's Look, gonna find his way out. You could take the Affleck out of Boston, but you can't take the Boston out <laughs> it's of impossible. Affleck. <laughs> Let's talk about music. Danny fucking Elfman. Yeah, and it's his weirdest score that I've ever heard. It really is. <laughs> Because it doesn't feel like Danny Elfman? It doesn't feel like Danny Elfman. Like, Danny Elfman, whenever I think of him, I think of, like, weird gears turning. Or, right. <laughs> like, music happened to come out of, like, a box somewhere. Yeah, some like, kind think of... Like, any opening to a Tim Burton movie. Tim Burtonism, exactly. But this, this is, like, appropriate to the movie, which, I mean, Elfman always is, but I don't know. This is a different side of him. It's still, it's good. It is good. It's, it's not, not my... particularly memorable. Not my Danny Elfman that I adore it was nominated for an oscar but obviously lost titanic like everybody did that year sure i also really like the use of afternoon delight <laughs> which was a great choice <laughs> it's a fantastic choice for that therapy scene when he's getting therapized by the one guy the hypnotist and then of course they added in at the end of the credits which is fun that is fun this is not my favorite score by no. any stretch no. i kind of want to go like a five but danny a elfman five. i want to give a six to I, I'm going to say five, five with the Elfman bump gives it a Perfect. six. It's the weakest part of this movie, unfortunately. Unfortunately. And it's, it's a surprise that it's coming for, on the heels of Daniel Elfman. Exactly. But that is going to bring us to Box Office. And this movie had a surprising trajectory at the box office. It released to almost nothing. We mentioned earlier, $10 million budget. Opening weekend, it only made $272,000. Oh, God abysmal yes came out the same week as amistad surprisingly did better than amistad but that is surprising yeah but the, the trajectory of this movie over the weeks is insane because like two weeks two three weeks later titanic comes out and at that point you're like all right my movie's sunk nobody's gonna see it that's a good titanic joke if you didn't mean it <laughs> <laughs> pun always intended <laughs> oh uh, apologies to everybody for spoiling Titanic. The boat sank. Oh, yeah, by the way. There's an iceberg. It's a whole thing. It is a whole thing. <laughs> but over the weeks, this movie generated a lot of buzz and just kept getting better and better at the box office. I mean, it is going up against things like Titanic, Tomorrow Never Dies, Scream 2, that were all huge movies in 1997. Sure. It ended up finally making $225 million. On that a $10 million budget. Huge on a $10 million budget. Which, of course, is a 2,259% return on budget. Yeah, we can't really argue that one. I know we're trying to find a way to fix the score, but that one's a 10. You That's can't argue 10. that. Exactly. There's, there's no getting around that. When you make that kind of money, you get a 10 for box office. Especially when there's a Titanic out at the same time. To make that kind of money is impressive. It really is. And that's going to bring us to our final category, which is the impact on the industry. I have to imagine it's huge. Yeah. I mean, the movie got nine Academy Award nominations. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, which it won for Robin Williams. Best Supporting Actress, Minnie Driver. Best Screenplay, which it won. Best Film Editing, Best Original Dramatic Score, and Best Original Song. That's a lot of nominations. That's a ton, especially in a Titanic year. Especially in a Titanic year. But also, it catapulted Matt Damon and Ben Affleck into absolutely superstardom. Like Robin Williams didn't need the help. No. But I mean he got the little golden boy for it. He did. So. <laughs> you can't argue with those results. No, you can't. Um I, I'm gonna go with a 10. Yeah. I, I feel like without this movie, movies don't look the same in the decades that follow. I agree. And especially when you're coming off of I hate to say it, a Miramax movie, which right. this is Miramax was very known for taking these risks yeah. on these unknowns. And you have someone like Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier who are executive producing this, and they're still fresh faces in Hollywood. Yeah. And it I mean, showed that you could take the swing and still knock it out of the park. Say what you will about the Weinsteins. Yes. And I will leave and it at say that. Say it loudly. Uh, they are horrible, horrible, horrible people. But they did give us. The careers of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And a lot of other people, unfortunately. Yeah. So uh, I got to say 10. It's a 10. And that is going to give Goodwill Hunting a final score of 84. 
that feels low. It feels very it low. It feels like we kind of like fixed ourselves a little bit. Yeah, maybe. Especially because Rotten Tomatoes, this has got a 97 critically. Yeah. And a 94 audiencely. <laughs> audiencely. I like it. So we don't have to chug anything. Nothing lined up this time. I yeah. only pulled one letterbox review, and it felt like this is the appropriate one to read before we find out what we're talking about next week. Okay. It is from August 4th, 2018. Robin Williams' Guiding White Boys is my new favorite cinematic universe. <laughs> He's very good at it. He's very, very good at it. And he didn't have to stand on a desk this time. So that's good on him. Good for you, Robin. And on that note, we got to find out what we're talking about next week. And next week is an audience pick. That's right. We're doing our audience pick a little early this month because we do have a Christmas special lined up. So look out for, for the vote on that because it is going to go to a vote. It is. We're going to be putting up the poll. Make sure you get your vote in. Uh, but in the meantime, we are going to select an audience pick. Everybody got their stuff in. How many are on the list now? I mean, it's got to be large. The list is now at 28 submissions. <laughs> oh, man. So. That's awesome. If you're a patron, you get either your movie on there twice, or you get to pick two movies. So you have a very good chance. Exactly. You have at least twice the odds of the people who aren't on Patreon. But let's uh, let's. Find out what we're talking about next week. Brian's putting the list into the random number generator. His face just tilted like a, a confused puppy. That was a weird reaction to have. What do you got? <laughs> next week, uh, courtesy of Donnie, who is absolutely in his element. Absolutely. We're going to be talking about the Belko experiment. Fuck yes. So, little James Gunn action. I think it's written by him, but I know we got a Michael Rooker in there and a Sean Gunn at the very least and a John C. McGinley. Well, I'm, I'm on board for all of that. I am so excited. When he said that that's what he wanted, I went, fuck yes. I remember seeing it, and I don't remember anything about it. Have you ever seen it? I've never seen this movie. Well, uh, this is very exciting. Next week, the Belco Experiment! Until then, thank you for listening. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe. Join us on Patreon this month for the very first crappy hour. We're going to be talking about Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas. I am weirdly excited for that one. Uh, it's going to be a journey, and... I believe we're going to be recording that the same night as we do our Christmas episode, so we'll be nice and lubed up for that. <laughs> yep. It's going to be a very festive night. So we get to talk about Kirk Cameron saving Christmas, and then we're going to fire into whatever you, the audience, picks for our Christmas episode, very lubed up and probably full of hate. It's going to be, it's <laughs> so going to be, it's going to be great. It's going to be full of Christmas spirit going into the Christmas <laughs> special episode. <laughs> You can email us your questions and comments at beermeamoviepod at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at beermeamovie on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitch, and at beermeamoviepod on Twitter. And, uh, you know, get your suggestions in for next month. January's right around the corner. Especially if you were one of the ones who suggested a Christmas movie for this month. Yeah, uh, maybe change that. Or don't. It's funnier if you don't. You don't have to, but but (laughs) I'd prefer to leave Christmas in 2022. That's very, very fair. Brian, you got anything else? That's it for me. Fantastic. Once again, next week, the Belco Experiment. We'll see you then. The Belco Experiment. I wish I had thought of that. See you next week.